The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. So good evening, everybody, and welcome to A16Z Bio's Clubhouse Room, where we cover the future of bio and healthcare in a loosely structured interactive discussion. Uh, for those who might not know me, I'm Vijay Pandey, drama partner at A16Z. Uh, joining us today is Pro Dr. Prag Malik, uh, founder and chief scientist at Nautilus, a life sciences company that is unlocking the complexity of the proteum. Uh, Prague is uh, also an associate professor at Stanford University and a very well-known interdisciplinary scientist. He has over 75 publications and holds patents in the fields of artificial intelligence, proteomics technology, biomarker development, and nanotechnology. Uh, and actually, on a personal note, I have very, very fond memories of meeting up with Prague uh, at the BioX cafeteria at Stanford uh, years ago and being really super blown away by him describing his completely new idea for proteomics. And now, you know, just a few years later, for him to turn that into Nautilus, a public company, making that all happen. It's been an amazing run to watch. Welcome, Prague. Thanks so much, Vijay. I'm really excited to sit down and chat with you all today. Oh, thank you. So maybe first off, Prague, I'll ask you a question. So, you know, I'd love to get some sense uh, from you in terms of, you know, what sort of were your personal motivations and background to do this? I mean, uh, you know, you have such an impressive background. Uh, what's your story for, uh, you know, getting here and founding Nautilus? Yeah, well, so, you know, I, I think Nautilus really starts with a story of personal frustration. Uh, I don't know if you're supposed to start a company because you're irritated. Uh, but that is that is in fact where Nautilus came from. It's often a good uh, way to start. <laughs> yeah. So my my own my own background, as you mentioned, is we, my academic lab had done a lot of work in multiomics and systems biology and bringing together lots of different types of data to uh, really target personalized medicine and uh, understand cancer and early detection. And uh, as part of those studies, you do lots and lots of work with with genomes and transcriptomes and and all of that work over the last decade has become really commoditized. It's really easy for basically any lab scientist who wants to measure the genome or transcriptome can. And so we'd do those studies and we're like, this is great. And then we'd go to the other side of the fence and we'd do the companion proteomic studies and they were incredibly hard, frustratingly so. And our lab is, is good at this. Uh, this we're, uh, we, we have a lot of experience, and, and yet when you go and you take a drop of blood and you say, I want to know what are the proteins here, I just, you know, simple question, what's there and how much? You, you do a lot of work, months of work, tens of thousands of dollars, and at the end of it, you measure 8% of the proteins that are present. Eight. Single digit, 8%. And, you know, proteins drive all of biology. And so to have this brick wall that you couldn't get past, uh, you know, no one has ever measured the whole proteome in one experiment. Um, and it's so fundamental. This was really the, the frustration for me with saying proteins are so important. Why can't we measure them? And then uh, literally waking up one day and after banging my head against this problem for years and years and years and saying, wow, there's there's a way to do this. There's a way to actually measure the entire proteome and do it in one experiment and do it uh, quickly and in a way that any biologist could access the proteome. And something like that 
really changes the landscape of biology. And it's, it was just too important to say, okay, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that aside, ignore that, forget about that. Uh, instead, you look at it and you're like, wow, this, this, is, this is important. This has to exist. We have to bring this into the world. And that was really the genesis of Nautilus, was seeing a path forward to solve a really important problem in a way that could help a lot of people. And then saying, all right, let's go do this. Let's go build the company that's going to bring this into the world. Was it actually? Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead, Horry. I was just going to ask: Was it actually a eureka moment for you? Like, did you actually connect the dot when you woke up in the morning? I, I really did. It was. It was actually. Uh, you know, my fiance actually remembers this really vividly um, because I'd just come back from this crazy road trip. I had. I was feeling a little crunchy and like my head was all muddy, and so I went on a trip. I threw a dart in the country and said, all right, I'm going to start in Detroit and I'm going to take a one-way trip for, <laughs> for two weeks. And, uh, and I threw another dart and landed in Denver. And um, that was the extent of my plan. And so I uh, literally every day woke up and said, all right, where am I going to go today? And uh, drove that direction. And I came out of that trip and I think it gave me an opportunity to background process a lot of things that had been muddy. And, uh, and literally the weekend after I came back, I woke up Saturday morning, and uh, and I think the words first words out of my mouth were like, "Oh, that's how you do it." Followed by, "Really? No, that can't possibly work." <laughs> <laughs> that's basically and, how uh, Doc Brown came up with the flux capacitor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and so then I spent the rest of the weekend, uh, you know, doing doing simulations and muttering to myself, and um, uh, you know, being a crazy person, which. You know, I'm not prone to being one, but um, but I came out of that weekend and, and it was very clear that there was a path forward. It just required a lot of inversions and in thinking that were, um, you know, not how not how one typically uh, approaches protein analysis problems. Yeah, maybe you could help us understand the background for this. It's not like people haven't been trying to this, uh, trying to do this, and there are are there competing uh, approaches. I mean. Uh, what do you think was like special about the sort of way you're thinking about things? Yeah, so you know, I guess to set the stage, uh, proteomics is not new. Uh, it's you know the early applications of proteomics and mass spectrometry as the sort of workhorse of proteomics really dates back to the late '80s, um, where uh, new ionization methods came about. And, um, and so if you look at proteins, there really were two broad classes of approaches for doing broad-scale proteomics. The first was the mass spectrometry-based approaches, um, and then the other were the affinity-based approaches, where you used antibodies or aptamers and uh, tended to make things that were really specific. You tried to build, build antibodies to one particular protein and make a reagent that was really, really specific to that one, one reagent. Um, and Oftentimes, you would use them in a technique called an ELISA or protein array. You take a whole bunch of them, and you would glue them down on a surface and then try and capture that protein out of a complex mixture. Uh, and so that was, that was sort of the standard approach. And then on the other side, you had you know, your mass spectrometer, which uh, digested proteins into peptides and ionized them and did a, a lot of uh, amazingly complex and beautiful things inside the instrument. Um, but what, what became clear in that sort of moment of clarity were a couple key inversions. The first was how valuable physical space was. And uh, what that led to in, in, 
in thinking was saying, okay, well, let's, let's literally flip this problem upside down. We have this, this challenge in measuring proteins that we can't amplify them, and they exist across a wide range of concentrations. So if there's one molecule in solution, you need a technique sensitive enough to measure one molecule. So how does one get there? Well, let's take advantage of space. Well, let me even like pause you there. Single yeah. molecule resolution for proteomics also was not something even people were like even <laughs> trying for necessarily, right? That's right. Yeah, uh, I think the vast, the vast, vast, vast majority of all protein analysis methods operate in bulk. They operate right. um, across, you know, billions of molecules uh, where you're, they're really looking at aggregate signals, and then their measurement is some some you know brightness or intensity or something that's related to the bulk property of large numbers of molecules yeah yeah and, and so but it sounded like from the way you're describing this that you were starting from the dream and then working backwards not from the technology and what get, what's the best we can do like everything you described was like if only we could do blank and blank and blank yeah that that's right it was it was saying I'd, I'd spent a decade or more, as had the rest of the field, trying to take the existing workflow and chip away at it, and you know improve the chromatography, improve the ionization, and you know do my best to optimize and improve. And I just didn't see a way that by updating or adapting the current workflow, we would ever get to what biologists actually want. Yeah. And so. What biologists want is they want something really sensitive, fast, easy to use, with a wide dynamic range. And so, uh, you, you know, there are two ways you can try to get there. One is to try and optimize the thing you've got, or to throw that thing away and start over from scratch. Yeah. And this was very much the latter. Yeah. And so maybe you can continue a little bit on the founder story. So you had this sort of vision for how to do it. Like what happens next? <laughs> um, well, then you you think about the right vehicles for getting something out in the world, and in in some cases that's go to your academic lab and say, all right, let's go let's go do something. Um, in some cases that's uh, go talk to a big company and say, hey, big company, why don't you do this? Or you know, your third option is start a company. And those different vehicles have different pros and cons and different things that they're good at. Um, but for this particular one, it required, it required an incredible amount of interdisciplinary collaborative effort. It required scale. It required tremendous amounts of creativity. Uh, and the combination of all of those factors said, you know what, the right vehicle to get this out in the world is a startup company. So that was step one, decide on the right vehicle. Um, and and, and what, what was the criteria that you used to decide that? Like uh, you, that felt right, but what, what, what about it felt right? Yeah, I think, you know, when one looks at the opportunities that one has in a startup, you have the opportunity to have intense focus on one product initially. Um, and so you can get a large number of people from different backgrounds collaborating to solve one problem. Um, that's something that's really special about, about startups. Um, it, uh, the other aspect is, you know, particularly relative to academia, where you know, at the end of the day, there's, we do collaborative research, but there's a first author and a last author. Mm -hmm. um, the opportunity in a startup is literally 100 different types of scientists working together to solve one problem. 
Um, yeah. So I think that that focus, that creativity, the pace of of a startup, that scrappiness and willingness to pivot quickly, those are key attributes of, of a startup as well. Of you know, and well, so well, and 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 not worrying about what the publication is going to look like, right? Worrying right. about getting this out. Absolutely, absolutely. The focus on on doing something um, solely for the purpose of building a product that will help a lot of people. Um, yeah. 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 So what, what comes next? Yeah. So then, uh, you go ask for, ask for advice. And so that's, that was really my next step was saying, all right, I'm, I've got to go start a company. Um, and so I reached out to a number of different people to, to just get their advice and perspective. And one of the first people that I reached out to was, uh, Zad Nazem, uh, who I'd known for many years, uh, and who I know you, you're familiar with VJ, um, yep. just an amazing, uh, investor and mentor and person and uh and just chatted with him about hey i had this this crackpot idea i think um you know what do you think about it how does one get started and uh and so, and so zod's he, former cto at, at at yahoo you know was there in the early days has a lot of experience with startups sort of that type of perspective he could bring is that what you were thinking about at that time Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. That he he had invested in, I think, eighty five different wow. uh, different uh, as an angel investor. So he had seen different landscapes. He yeah. had at, he'd been an operator himself through yep. his experience at at, uh, at Yahoo in the early days and before that Oracle. Um, and so he had both the expertise on both the funder side and the operator side, which was really great. And so, you know, after talking to Zod, and I also talked to Don Listwin, who uh, was the founder of the Canary Foundation, uh, also uh, did a lot of investing and um, was one of the early, early folks at Cisco, um, got his perspective. And then I reached out to Sujal Patel, who I had known for 15 years. Uh, I had been one of his customers at his previous startup, uh, which he had grown from nothing to uh, to ultimately selling to, uh, to to Dell EMC for several billion dollars and um, reached out to him and said, hey, Sujal, uh, I have to go start a start a company. Uh, you know, can I please get your top three pieces of wisdom so I don't screw it up? And um, and, you know, Sujal uh, was very kind to give me some advice, but he also was intrigued. And, and so what, what were you, you can't leave us hanging like that. So what was the wisdom? <laughs> um, so I think uh, I think the three key pieces of, of advice that I got from him on that day were one, um, find a good partner. Um, don't don't go it alone. Um, number two, make sure that you have a product that matters. Um, that's yep. so, you know, sort of thinking about product market fit. And then his third piece of advice was one that I, I really hadn't appreciated, but I do very much now, which is, um, don't try to be cheap. Hmm. Um, that's interesting. that because there's, there's being capital efficient and then yep. there's being cheap. Yep. And what he really emphasized was, okay, well, if you spend a little more money, can you go faster? And that's not always true, right? It's not yep. always true that by spending a little more money, you can go faster. But when you can, it's really valuable to do. Well, and nowadays, uh, for a really brilliant idea, money will come, but uh, you got to be like, you got to be the winner. But uh, yeah, so uh, let's maybe, so go further in chronology. So you meet Sigil, 
Uh, like, how, how did you end up sort of sealing the deal in terms of deciding you wanted to work together? <laughs> yeah, yeah so, actually, so actually went... before, before you answer that mm-hmm. question, just because it's just us friends here, were you actually calling him for advice or were you trying <laughs> to intrigue him? <laughs> I actually was calling for advice. Um, I, I really had not, um, was not reaching out to him uh, with hopes of investing. I, I really had... It I, it sounds a little naive, but I really was just seeking advice from a friend. What's that old adage? Ask for advice, get the co-founder. <laughs> Ask the co-founder get advice. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, well, and it's even sillier than that, right? Ask for advice, get the co-founder, the CEO, and the first check. Um, <laughs> yeah. Did you, yeah, by so... the way, did you, Parag, have a feeling that when he sold you, I think you were at Cedars, right? If I'm not mistaken, yeah. but. Uh, did you have a sneaky suspicion that you're going to start something down the road or was that, you know, that thought didn't really occur to you until the very last minute? Didn't occur to me at all. Uh, you know, I met Sujal. I thought he was an amazing person. I liked him. I thought what I thought his product back then was fantastic and met a need that we had. And um, and so it really was a great person with a great product. Like, uh, how do you end up designing to work together? <laughs> well, so, I, you know, Sujal and I, after that relationship back then, had stayed in touch. And then his uh, his family foundation has been supporting my academic lab at Stanford um, for the last uh, nine years or so. And so we stayed in touch continuously. I'd give him updates on our research. And um, and so when I called him up, it wasn't completely uh, out of the blue. I haven't talked to him in 10 years. It was, you know, <laughs> hey, I... I, I let's let's chat about this new thing that I have to share with you. Uh, and he, at the time, was working with Madrona and um, and was really looking for some his next big opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, he wanted to do something substantial. He wanted to, uh, you know, he had many opportunities to continue to work in the storage space, the tech space that he came from. But yeah. the and then to be clear, storage is like hard drive uh, data storage. I mean, he's a correct. tech founder. And this is a very bio company. Yes, yes, absolutely. But that was what he was excited about. He he had been looking in the healthcare space, in the bio space, in clean energy, in mm. places where he could put a stamp and make an impact. Um, and so after chatting with him on the phone, he invited me up to sit down with him in his office. And we sat down at a whiteboard and uh, and spent, uh, spent a couple days drawing out the the technology and how it worked and talking about the need and, uh, and what it could accomplish. And, uh, and it was really the, at the end of those, and in those conversations, he asked me, it's like, okay, well, you know, you've got a plan that says you need X amount of money um, and it'll take you X amount of years and this many people. And like, well, what if you had two times that? What if you had five times that? What if you had 10 times that? Um, and pushing on different parts of the plan and forcing me to think a little bit bigger and faster. And, um, and you know, we left that meeting and he was, he was excited. He, he understood this approach and he understood why it might work. And he went and simulated it himself. <laughs> and, yeah. um, uh, and then he talked to his wife <laughs> and got permission. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I mean, picking a co-founder is almost like picking a spouse, right? In terms of impact and significance, someone you're partnering with and working with long-term and so on. I mean, any tips for people listening for things that, you know, for how to do that? I think you pick very well. 
Um, you know, any, any looking back on that now, any thoughts? I, I think, um, I think number one is, is a foundation of mutual respect, um, that you can be honest with the person mm -hmm. yep. when things are going well and when things are going not so well. Um, yep. I think it's oftentimes when things are not going well, that if you don't have that foundation of respect, that fractures can form. Yep. Um, yeah. I mean, same advice could be done with spouses too. <laughs> yeah. Touche. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then I, I do think there's, there's tremendous value in having complementary skills mm -hmm. um, and, and appreciating those complementary skills, which really comes back to respect. Um, you know, Sujal, Sujal and I do bring, you know, overlapping skill sets in that we both understand computation and data science, but we have also very distinct skills and that he understands how to build and scale a, a company and build a market and build a direct sales force and all of these other elements. Um, you know, I bring the scientific side and the rigor and the, the domain knowledge. And so those two are really compatible and complementary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I think that's really important because, you know, you're a, you're a team. And at the end of the day, like you said, it's your, it's your spouse. And so uh, yep. each bringing something that you can share to the relationship is really yep. valuable. Yep. Oh, that's very well said. So Nautilus is a public company now. Fast forwarding between those early days and where you are today, anything stand out for uh, sort of um, things you would have done differently, things that, you know, how, how, you know, advice you'd have for other founders that are trying to walk in similar footsteps? I would say, uh, I'd say not necessarily something I would do differently, but something that I think other founders should appreciate, um, which, which really is that the, I think there often is this perception that the venture community has an adversarial relationship with founders. And that you only go to them when you need money and that you're, you know, it's like this jousting match. I, I think that perception is just flawed. And I think yeah. it sets up a dynamic that's really not helpful to either the founders or the venture community. Um, you know, I've, I've really found with my journey with, with you, with AC Z, with Madrona, with, uh, with, uh, you know, every, every partner that we've worked with, with Perceptive and Vulcan and others, um, that really what you are looking for is to put capital to work to accomplish important things. Yep. And that, you know, along the way, if you solve important problems that people care about, there will be a, uh, you know, and you do it well, that there will be a financial upside to that. Um, and yep. so I, I think having you involved in the conversation early, getting your perspective and advice when we weren't fundraising um, was immensely valuable. And so I would urge founders to not <laughs> to, you know, to to have these conversations early and often and include you in the journey. Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, what I'm very especially curious about process wise for you is that I think for a lot of academic founders, um, they just aren't aren't familiar with the process, and they're trying to lean on their experiences and trying to map academia to companies. And I think one mapping they do is they map um, money to money, and so venture <laughs> to like NIH or NSF, you know, to funding agencies, and they map VC to program officer, 
And I think that's where there's a failed mapping because your program officer is someone who, you know, and, and you're, you're laughing because they're great people and they're helpful, but like they, they just, they're the beginning and you work with in the early stages and then you go off and do your job. But like, you know, uh, uh, the investor I think is very different. I, I think uh, the way I would suggest people think about it is almost more like a collaborator. You know, if you're going to do this academic mapping, um, was this obvious to you or did you learn it the hard way or like how do, how are people supposed to learn these things that are hard to learn that, you know, just not obvious this or other things about this switch from academia? I think it has it starts with um, really being willing to learn. Yeah. And not and, and willing to, you know, when you're a professor, you're you're, you know, captain, captain of your particular hill. Yep. Um, and there's a tendency to say, okay, I'm captain of this hill. <laughs> and so uh, I will therefore be captain of that hill. Um, mm -hmm. But to instead take a step back and say, you know, this is a new domain. Recognize that it's a new domain. And, you know, if you were a biochemist and you're trying to learn cardiology, you would, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you would have the humility to start with the textbook and ask yep. for advice and, and treat it as a new domain. And so for me, that, that was, that was the, you know, even though I'd been around this space and I'd learned a lot by osmosis and observation, um, taking it seriously as a new domain with different rules and different, different principles, um, I think was very important. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that, I think that's very well put and that's e easier said than done. I mean, one other topic that I think is really hard is scaling. Like Nautilus yeah. has um, uh, uh, is, uh, is getting to be quite a large size company now <laughs> compared yeah. to the early days. And it feels yeah. like, you know, just five versus 10 versus 20 versus 40 versus, you know, 60 versus 100, like almost like a different company uh, yeah. every iteration. Like, how was that like for you? And like, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, um, any lessons there that you would have for, for listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I, I I think you've you've put your finger on on a really important point. Uh, you know, people think about you know first industry versus academia as these big divides. But of course, if you go to a first year assistant professor's lab, that's different than going mm -hmm. to you know a Nobel laureate hundred person uh, yep. lab. They're different yep. animals. Uh, same thing in industry. Going to a three person startup is very different than going and working at a ten thousand person pharma. Um, totally different universes. And I think that's true even within that spectrum of early phase two folks in a garage startup versus mid-stage. And the, the dividing lines, as I observed them, um, you know, there was, a, there was a transition point around eight uh, that the company sort of changed its, its vibe a little bit because you now started to have some substructure developing. Um, and then by the time you hit 20, you definitely started to have some substructure and the elements of, you know, they're departments of two people, but they're still departments with, with more defined responsibilities. Uh, you know, I think the next transition point was right around 45, 50, uh, where you really start to need explicit vehicles for communication that, you know, when you've got 20 people, you can gather everyone in a room and be like, hey, folks. <laughs> this is, this is, a, you know, this is, how do you feel about this? This is our plan. Uh, when you start getting to 50, it becomes harder to have those, those vehicles of communication. And so you need to put special effort 
into making sure that people are sharing information and that uh, that you have routes to make sure that that you know not through poor intent but just lack of process, lack of systems um, yeah. that, that things get shared. And so I think that's that's really the big thing that happens as you get larger, as well as the this as you move along the product roadmap, what in the early days you're trying everything you can to see what sticks. As you mature towards product, it's really about making sure that you can do the same thing a hundred times. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a shift in mentality from that, you know, cowboy uh, oh, yeah. uh, let, uh, sort of mentality of let's see what sticks. Yeah. So just um, to pull on this thread a little bit, I'm just super curious, you know, given that this is your first time, you know, really inside the startup world, right? You talked about, you know, have been exposed to startups through the work in your lab and, and the like. Um, what have been the surprises for you, positive or negative, from the inside in terms of startup life? Uh, I would say I had no idea how hard it is to find amazing talent. Hmm. Um, it's something that is really underappreciated. We, of course, are an incredibly interdisciplinary company. And so the demands on talent and having a cultural fit and, uh, you know, people who have a collaborative, creative startup mindset, adding those, those cultural layers on top of the technical layers, which are already hard, uh, is, is much, much more of a challenge than I anticipated. Uh, the one other thing that I think is important in startup mindset is accountability and impact. Uh, you know, I think when you're in a startup, particularly an early phase startup, but everybody who's part of that team has influence over the company's success. Uh, and that's that's mildly terrifying, um, mm-hmm. both for the company and for the person. <laughs> To know that they are part of building the company that they want to be part of five years from now, yeah. Um, and you know, if if you're working in a company that has fifty thousand people, um, you know, whether you succeed or fail, the company isn't going to be fine. When you're working in a company of eight, it brings up the gravitas of what you're doing, and not everybody is looking for that. Not everybody's ready for that. Um, and so I think that was the other thing that was surprising is that you could have very smart, very capable people. Um, but that challenge of bearing that much responsibility is, um, is something that is very special to, um, to a subset of people who are looking for it. Yeah, that's well put. It, it, one of the surprises always for me in the early days with switching academia to company stuff is in academia, you know, you might have a big group. And a professor can only talk in a talk for like half an hour, an hour. There's only so many people's work you can do. So the quality of your talk is limited by the top 5% or something like that. Just how good are the best. But in a company, it almost feels like you're limited by the bottom 5%. Like <laughs> are, who's going to drag things down? Um, so uh, let's switch to, to talking about proteomics and especially this potential for being a game changer. So like, uh, is that hype? Like what, what part of that is real? What part of that is hype? What part of this is like true today? What part of it is true like six months from now, a year from now and so on? Yeah, well, so I think, I think let's start with the role that proteomics plays in, in the biomedical ecosystem today. And then I'll let you decide for yourself if it's hype or not. Yeah. Um, 95% of therapeutics in the market 
target a protein. Um, of the uh, protein biomarkers, uh, you know, of the biomarkers that are used, 70% um, <laughs> um, target, target proteins. Um, the best we can do in terms of looking for new targets today on cells is to measure somewhere between 20 and 30% of what's there. Given those fairly simple statistics, if I were to tell you, hey, VJ, tomorrow, I'm going to double the number of things you can see on mm -hmm. the cell surface. I, that's now 30% more proteins. Uh, sorry, that's 100% more proteins <laughs> that yep. may be the next great drug, drug targets of tomorrow. If you were to take that drop of blood where you knew there were great biomarkers waiting to be found, and you're looking at 8% of it, and you say, all right, let's crank that up to 90%. Now you're finally getting into the levels where there are those low abundance markers that are shed from cancers and uh, disease tissues and others. Um, so I, I, I think the reality is that proteins drive all of biology and we're looking at such a small subset of them today that by opening up the rest of them, it's just this huge uh, you know, dark proteome waiting to be found. Yeah. So I, I, I don't see it as hyperbolic at all. Well, but um, and maybe to get a little geeky technical, like couldn't you just do RNA-seq or some other existing method to get at what, you know, get this stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we get asked that a lot. And, and actually, in our voice of customer, uh, we've heard from people saying, well, I'm, I can do a lot of RNA-seq. Um, well, as it turns out, my academic lab at Stanford happens to study multiomics. And we, we do things like do head-to-head -head proteomics RNA-seq studies. Uh, and what if you just ask what the correlation is between RNA-seq and protein, um, it's typically somewhere around 0.3 really? on, a good, on a good day. And that's R or R squared, or should I not even bother to ask? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, again, if you just plot an XY scatter plot yeah. of abundance yeah. of transcript and abundance of protein, it looks yeah. like a giant circle with no correlation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you can do all the rna seq you want. It's really valuable. It is a, absolutely a part of the regulatory process, but it's not going to tell you that something is present or not present on the cell surface. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, how do you think this is going to get rolled out? Is this going to be? Um, like if, if you could be 10 years from now looking back at the future and you're telling me the history of this, much like you were telling me the history of the formation of the company now, imagine like we're doing this uh, clubhouse 10 years in the future and you're telling me the history from 2021 onward. Like what does it look like? Like um, does it start as a research tool? Is it ever a CDX? Is it ever a diagnostic? Where is like, you know, wh 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 what does the next 10 years look like? Yeah. Well, let's start with the dream, and then we can walk yeah. back through the, the... That's a great place to start. Yeah. I, I think the dream, and internal to the company, we say this a lot, which is the goal of Nautilus is to make a reality where anyone who wants a proteome gets a proteome. Um, You'll be the Oprah of proteomes. We'll be the Oprah of proteomes. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, yes. uh, and you get a proteome, and you get a proteome, and you exactly. get a proteome. <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, and that's just such a contrast to where we are today. 
And the reason that's important is because it means that we're not targeting just the existing proteomics community. We're targeting the broader biological community that wants to study proteins. So, um, okay, so then how do we get there? Well, so step one, as you mentioned, is to begin with, um, with measuring proteomes and proteiforms. And that's where we are today, is, is beginning, is doing these proteiform studies and working with partners. And, and we're gonna be doing that for the next couple of years. Um, and then as we move forwards from that, uh, the, you know, we're going to exit this, or we're going to expand, I guess, uh, from this partnership phase to a phase where we release an instrument. And that instrument initially will be dominantly used for, as a research tool. Um, so the target is 2023. And, uh, and that will begin that ramp where anybody who wants to access to the proteome will be able to buy the instrument and use it in their lab. Uh, it will initially start off as a research tool. But what we anticipate happening is that over time, somebody somewhere is going to be working on, on a, a disease area, an orphan disorder, find not just, you know, initially they'll find a biomarker and they'll probably clinically translate it with an ELISA or some existing technology, but eventually they're gonna come up with a panel that doesn't have great existing reagents or where it would be too hard, it's too large a panel. And at that point, it makes the most sense to measure it on our platform. And that's really the gateway that transitions our platform from being a research tool to being a clinical tool and being part of diagnostic efforts or prognostic efforts. Um, and then ultimately, you know, I imagine that what will happen over time is in the same way that with genomics, it started off in research, it evolved to clinic, and then it evolved from there to being personal, um, you know, yeah. like we're seeing. And so I, I see a similar roadmap for proteomics. I was just going to say, so many of the parallels you're describing are similar to, um, uh, at least analogous to what Illumina went through, yep. you know, mm -hmm. with commercializing genomics. Are there, what lessons can you learn from their playbook and what lessons from the Illumina journey are irrelevant to your playbook. And yeah, maybe what a, can you do better? <laughs> yeah, so I think some of the key things we, we can learn are that, uh, you know, build a product that's easy to use. <laughs> and, uh, and I think if you look at their platform, you know, they were going up against Sanger sequencing at the time, um, which was, you know, a gold standard, extremely accurate, um, but slow <laughs> um, and uh, technology. And they said, all right, well, we're not going to be perfect. We're not going to be Sanger sequencing, but we're going to be awfully darn good. <laughs> and, but we're going to be fast. We're going to be easy to use. We're going to be accessible. Um, and that was really what drove their market share. So I think that's an important lesson, which is to not let perfect get in the way of product <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and to recognize the value of having that, that democratizing as a way to build, um, build value. Um, so I think that's a lesson absolutely learned from them. You know, one of the things that doesn't apply that they had the advantage of is that they were coming on the heels of the human genome project of there being technologies to do that really detailed measurement of the whole genome, not at scale or quickly, but able to do it at all. We don't have that comparator available. There, there is nothing today that can measure the whole proteome. 
And so uh, that, that, on some level, gave them an, a, a something to look at and do head-to-heads against. And, to, um, and so we don't, we don't quite have that um, because we'll be the first to measure it um, in, in this way. And so, uh, so that is that side of the playbook we can't quite take advantage of. Um, I think the other sort of missed opportunities were really on the data side. I, you know, I think it was very clear that they were very focused on building a great instrument, but they, they may be, and I, you know, again, I wasn't there at those early days, but in terms of taking advantage of all of the data that was generated from the platform, from helping their customers interpret it, from warehousing it, and uh, doing sophisticated learning off of it, I think those are opportunities that we can capitalize on that maybe weren't as mature at the early days of the genomic revolution. Um, but you know, Jorge, I'd love to hear your perspective as well on this, having having seen 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 their ramp up up close. I think that that all sounds spot on and, and obviously very thoughtful. And you know, the one the one thing that I would maybe add is what they did extraordinarily well, which I think could be an, an interesting lesson here is. Um, you know, they very quickly became perhaps not the gold standard, but the broad standard for how to generate, you know, sequence data. And so, you know, when you joke about being, you know, the Oprah of proteomics, like it's not just you get a you get a you get a proteome and you get a proteome, it's you get a Nautilus proteome. And yeah. you know, that it just becomes the standard by which again, maybe it's not it doesn't have to be necessarily the gold standard, um, but the but it just be, it becomes the de facto standard on which everyone generates data and it just becomes you know, um, you know, kind of in, almost blends into the background. You just assume that a genome um, has been sequenced on an Illumina platform. <laughs> and at some point, you'll just assume a proteome has been characterized on Nautilus. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. So let's assume that you do sort of uh, um, meet your wildest dreams. Uh, what would sort of Prague 10 years from now be most excited about, about, the, about what's coming? You know what? What's the what's the the sort of the feat yet to be done that will be the 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 big thing that you know will that would really be the thing that you're looking forward to of all the possible things we've talked about. Wow, uh, you know, I, it's I think for me there there are a couple big stepping stones on that way. I think I think measuring substantially all of the proteome in one experiment itself is just such an exciting moment uh, yep. that I'm, you know, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but I think also as we look further out, um, I, I do believe that when we look at the therapeutic development workflow, that there are lots of opportunities to intercede and to bring proteomics data and learning on top of that data into that workflow in an extremely substantial way to make it faster, to make it cheaper, uh, to do a better job of predicting toxicity. And so I, I really look forward to the day where, you know, we can take some disease materials and some control materials and then put that in the context of this massive database of yep. the proteome and how it changes throughout the body over time and say, you know what, that protein there, that one, that's, that's the ticket. It's going to have low toxicity. Its off-target effects are going to be really small after you turn down the pathway, and it's going to be really effective at killing off that cancer. Yeah. 
No, I mean, when, you know, everyone knows how hard biology is and how hard drug design is. But, you know, I, I think in the end, we've been all doing it basically in the dark. Uh, I'm really excited for hopefully shedding some light. And so we can start to sort of change the whole process from guessing to sort of uh, ideally engineering. Uh, be my fantasy. Um, thank you so much, Parag. Uh, been a great conversation. Looking forward to more to come. Thank you. Thank you, Parag. Good night, everybody. Thank Good you. Good night.